Hello and welcome to Girls Gone Canon Watches Succession featuring poor Quentin. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. And I am not Eliana, your other not host. You're you're the host of this now. This I'm is the not a host. The if not you will. a host. Welcome back. If you're tuning in for the first time, we covered the wow, the fourth episode of Succession last time and season four. And this week we are covering season four, episode five, Kill List. So if you're not caught up with Succession to this point, log off, come back. Don't want to get you spoiled. Give it some time and watch it and uh, we'll catch up with you later. But if you are here, welcome or welcome back. Uh, this podcast is usually an A Song of Ice and Fire POV by POV read through podcast. However, we are covering Succession in the interim as we have a little brief hiatus and because Succession fucking rocks. Uh, Emmett, thank you for joining me. I was going to say us, but it's me. One more time. The royal us, of course. My mm-hmm. pleasure. Yes. And Emmett, you also have a podcast that covers a bunch of nerdy stuff. Do you want to rifle off what's going on with the Nauticast? Sure. The Nauticast podcast, which I uh, host with our friend Manu, a.k.a. Manuclear Bomb. We go through A Song of Ice and Fire one chapter at a time. Right now we're on the the lead up to the Red Wedding, the red carpet rolling out for the Red Wedding. Our next uh, Song of Ice and Fire episode is going to be on Samwell 3, Sam and Gilly stuck in the the winter wasteland north of the Wall. And I also cover Star Wars and Lord of the Rings for all of our $5 and above patrons, although I'm taking the month off of that, kind of a busy couple months for me. But yeah, you can check us out wherever you listen to your podcast. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. And you can follow us uh, on Twitter or Instagram at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. And you can find me at Port Quentin on Twitter. Thank you so much for joining us this week and for giving us some of your time. Because again, as you mentioned, you have lots popping off right now. I look forward to hearing more about it each week. You can also find us over at Patreon at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. That's C-A-N-O-N. Or you can hit us a tweet over at Twitter, girlsgonecanon, C-A-N-O-N. Patrons in the $5 and above tier get special perks like bonus episodes monthly. This month's episode will actually be delayed to May due to uh, some unforeseen circumstances we will be Hopping back on Patreon then. Our Patreon is on a pause. We are doing a special brunch slash happy hour for our patrons in the $10 and above tier still this month. That'll actually be happening, uh, if you're listening to this, it'll be happening uh, tomorrow for 29. So if you are listening to this on the Friday before in real time, hop on. But it's a fun time. We all log on on Discord voice chat and chit chat about life, play some games. It's, it's, it's fun. Come on over to the Discord. There's lots of great people over there. So without further ado, before we get too far into the weeds, uh, let's talk about Season 4, Episode 5, Kill List. Last time, you and I talked a little bit about Season 4 so far, so we get to skip over all of that today. Hooray. And we'll just talk about Kill List, which, according to HBO, the description of the episode is, After the Waystar team heads to Norway, Shiv, Kendall, and Roman consider whether to fight for Logan's crown jewel. All right. His crown jewel is none of his children. His (laughs) crown jewel is his favorite child, his news network. He loves his news network more than them. Well, his news network actually does something for him, so I don't know how much I can blame him for that, really. (laughs) ATN got all the good grades. ATN had all the gold star papers put on the fridge. Yeah, the teachers didn't write home saying ATN could apply themselves more. Yeah, imagining all all four of the Roy kids had that. Oh, their report cards would be magnificent. I'm going to think about that. Instead of uh, those fake news articles that Kendall had up about all his siblings during his birthday party, he should have just had their report cards blown up (laughs) to massive scale. You know Shiv staged like a walkout of gym in her senior year. But she managed, she managed to somehow turn it into a, a vaguely feminist thing. Exactly. But, but it was really, absolutely not. But absolutely not, because that's the Shiv Roy promise. <laughs> Front and center, big things this episode. Nicholas Brutel continues <laughs> to be the MVP of the show, especially this season. He's busting out new tracks, a new intro slash theme for Kendall as he went into uh, CEO mode, we could say, at Waystar. That was 
That was the shit, you know. Uh, thank you, Nicholas Bertel, for what you do. That, when they're on the mountaintop, there's this great little melody playing. The closing themes are always fantastic. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Made the episode amazing. The music does a lot of the uh, the emotional heavy lifting on succession. The emotive issues to steal Kendall's <laughs> dumbass turn of phrase from this episode. It's a running online joke with succession that people post like, oh my god, I was crying at this part, and then it's just a picture of an office with a guy standing in it like a stock photo. It doesn't translate to stills, I don't think. You feel it in the moment really because of the, the music, because of Nicholas Bertel. He's pulling a lot of weight, emotively speaking, as you said. Fucking, I can't help it. I listen to him a lot at work. I listen to the, the succession soundtracks when I'm getting shit done at work, doing data entry. I find it very somewhat relaxing, but also energizing. That's a good way of putting it. You're working harder than the Roys do. It's not. I mean, really, that was one of the things this episode I was like, oh, so you guys are just like all the other CEOs. Good to know. Good to know. You do nada. Zilch. Zero. Uh, I had some time on my hands this week, and I listened to Still Watching by Vanity Fair, the podcast, and they had Jay Smith Cameron on briefly for an interview, and lots of stuff was actually cut from this episode, and this is kind of funny. Uh, at least to probably me and you, because I've had a really weird hyper-focus the last few weeks of The Hunger Games. I never read them, so I just like read them in three days, and then I read the prequel, and now I'm watching the movies, and uh, this was supposed to have a more Hunger Games premise, which you can kind of see some of that, with the executives trying to keep their positions, and I think they did a great job of changing that and focusing on the kids, because the kids are obviously the real heart of this season. Jay Smith Cameron says that they had Swedish counterparts, right? Each one of them kind of had their own counterpart who were more athletic and savvy, competing against them in activities like boarding streams, hang gliding, mushroom foraging. The Swedes were all making poison jokes. Uh, See who could survive better. And this also included that sauna scene that we did get to see the legends outside with Carl and Frank. And the execs inside were kind of battling it out to see who could withstand the heat the longest. Really interesting, because Jay Smith said she didn't really get to do a lot to prove Jerry in this episode. And she didn't have to, as we see. She's not on the kill list. However, she did kind of joke behind the scenes of what she thinks should be happening. And they kind of let her play it, that she would, like, during the mushroom foraging, steal her opponent's basket when they weren't looking. Or, uh... You know, she'd be in the sauna with the guys outperforming and staying longer than them and being like, could we actually turn it up? It's getting a little cool in here. I would have loved to see that. Had canon is that's behind the scenes. I think the Hunger Games vibes were still there, especially when you had Hugo at the buffet, right? Very, uh, very Panem, not having too much excess food there in the capital. The one-on-one idea is cool. I feel like they already did that with Pierce. Like, that was a fun joke I liked when they were negotiating over Pierce in season two is that they were just the bizarro version of the Roy family and just had like an equivalent for each of them. So that that was pretty funny. And this episode did really feel like a huge remix of that. We'll talk a little more about that, I think, tonight. But a huge remix of that and a, a lot of remix of season one as we talk about kind of the very first scene that we get. So we open this episode up with a scene that could be season one, episode one of Succession. We have Kendall Roy... New CEO at Waystar. Wow, again, seen this one before. Listening to Takeover. And I gotta say, I love the song, and I know you have lots to say about it, and I love the moment, I love the parallels, but my favorite part, personally, is Fikrat. Like, that he gets out and once more he says, you know, to Fikrat, like, hey, thanks, Fikrat, all right, good, we're doing it. There, there's a lot we can say about Kendall Roy and his performativeness, and like, you know, like, he's a, he can be a killer, or he can be kind of like this fake feminist, whatever. He's kept Fikret employed this entire show so far, and Jess, and does seem to care about them, although he puts them through absolute insanity. Dasha had it coming. You know what I mean? Like, come Freak's character, like, she deserved to have to sell those lunchboxes. It's Dasha. But, like, the rest of them... He's really kept them employed, kept them in his economy. I love that for him. Yeah, it's true. He's got his little feudal obligations uh, to his underlings. And yeah, Ken listening to, to Takeover by, G, by Jay-Z, that had, me, that had me cackling. Great parallel and contrast to his opening scene when he was, he was rapping along to uh, an open letter to NYC by the Beastie Boys. But in this one, he's not rapping along. He's just sitting there, just silent, ice cold behind his shades. And it, that, that really ties into a Succession as a, as a New York City show, which is not something they do all that much with because it's, it's, more, it's, it's not really a show about New York. It's more a show about, about global capital as this thing that doesn't 
really have a center or a home base. It's just, it's all periphery. You just, you just jet all over the world. Wherever you go, it's beautiful. You're in charge. Could be anywhere. But you put those two songs together and that really tells a story in a way that's specific to the setting. An open letter to NYC by the Beastie Boys, they released it in 2004. It references 9-11. It's kind of in that era of the city kind of feeling wounded. It has something to work its way back from. But, but Takeover by Jay-Z very famously dropped on 9-11. The literal day of is when that album, The Blueprint, came out. So it just instantly became, it instantly became dated in an interesting way, that it became this time capsule of a pre-9-11 New York that was gone. Jay-Z just embodied this, you know, this untouchable, rich guy, cool persona, right before that persona came under attack. And that's the person Kendall's trying to be, but I think the, the real him is more still who he was in the first episode, that, that post-9-11 New York. He's scared, he's posturing, he's self-destructive. You get all his, to cover that up, you get just all his bullshit corporate jargon doublespeak. Like what he says when he's talking about uh, Matson's perspective on ATN, he says he knows it's an emotive issue for us. Instead of saying an emotional issue, which is what humans would say, no, it has to be an emotive issue because you got to mess with a word just to show you're smart. And, uh, and then, yeah, we get the, he arrives at the headquarters. You get Hugo and all his little underlings, his little additional manpower, as he says, and Kendall just says, welcome, additional manpower, because he knows, he knows they're spies. He knows that the old guard don't really trust them, which is why Hugo, when he's describing their PR strategy, just slips in that little line, uh, CE bros, as his new nickname for Kendall and Roman. He just immediately says, that's, that's kind of the bad version. Well, then why, why'd you bring it up at all, Hugo? Just to, just to slip the knife in. And then uh, Kendall hooks up with Roman. And Roman, it's been interesting watching his uh, relationship with the siblings evolve, that so often he has to be the voice of reason which is hysterical. It reminds me of in A Feast for Crows when on Cersei's Council of, of Outcasts and, and Morons, Grand Maester Pycelle, of all people, ends up being the voice of reason. And same thing with Roman here. He, of, of all people, Roman, introduced into the show burning sage for no reason. He is the one downplaying theatrics now, telling Kendall to stop sending so many emails and telling Jerry the same thing. And it once more shows a lot of their strengths and weaknesses, right? That Kendall is uh, able to kind of juggle some of that corporate bullshit. Right, like he's like, I can say the stupid words that mean nothing, the buzzwords, you know, lean manufacturing and labor and cut the costs and emotive. Like he can say this shit, get away with it. But Roman is a little lost when it comes to the corporate bullshit. And he, he's very reminiscent of Logan in some ways in this episode. He's even wearing Logan's sweater, it looks like, from his office. You know, he, the email thing, last time he got too many emails when they were CE bros, didn't he jack off in the corner? in the office like wasn't he so overwhelmed by emails that he went and just had to jack off because he couldn't do it they were just going off yeah i think it's a bigger issue for him right like i think he's not ready for that part of the corporate world uh, and logan wasn't really like that either he didn't like the email email bullshit meeting he was like get it done Brr, fuck off there's this great interview with jesse armstrong where he talks about uh behind the scenes Jeremy came to him, Jeremy Strong came to him and said, sent him an email basically and had this vision of when Kendall was younger, like six, coming with his dad to work, coming with, you know, the boss to work at Waystar and being like this little princeling, this little lost princeling, that this is his big first homecoming as ATN's lost prince of everything. And I thought that was such an eloquent way to put it because it is, you see him coming in and taking that moment and breathing and like, taking it all in that he is his daddy's heir. He's done it. He's back. And this is his terrain and everyone claps for him. I love that coming back to those corporate spies that they write off those corporate folks after their first touch point, letting them go off and do whatever they do to make shit happen. And they just go off and do whatever executives do, which is nothing to make shit happen, which is again, nothing. It's fake. Uh, the place just runs itself without them. Isn't that interesting that this place has basically run itself for the past week without a real boss at the helm? It reminds me of a line in Veep when, when Ben, the, the chief of staff who's been in politics forever, says to his frustrated underlings, look, we all know the White House would run better without a president, but we have one. <laughs> That's what they're dealing with here. Like, like, I love something Jerry always has to do, which is very patiently explain what the play is to the Roys, even though it should be obvious, and you can tell she's thinking it should be obvious that why do... And she had to do it for Logan. She, used to, she had to tell him what his own interests were. It's something, like, I see every day, right, of dealing with, like, corporate at my work, and I'm kind of in a weird position at my job. Not for long, but I'm kind of in this weird position at my own job where I'm, like, I deal with corporate a lot, but I deal with, like, 
the warehouse and the real workers, the actual people that like do the work that make the money for us in the long run. And so I'm kind of in a weird position between the two. So it's funny because you have some of those people that actually know what the fuck they're talking about, like Jerry, who's like, this is what it is. This is what it means. Let's put it down to layman's terms. And then you have people that are just like putting convoluted shit out there. And the old guard definitely is like, well, we know how to do it. This is the way. And I like how some of that will play out throughout the episode for the kids who are like, we get it. Yep, but they're often just pretty pretentious about it, like I was saying about, about Kendall's jargon and how, uh, how always meaningless it is, mm-hmm. which is a, it's always fun when people kind of cut through that for him. So then we get uh, the family, etc., and all their hangers-on taken off to Norway. Greg comes along to just be awkward and cringy as usual, and I, I love uh, a consistent thing with Hugo is how much just disdain he has, just this dripping disdain for Greg. Uh, when Greg likes Greg like tries to be chummy and says, "Yo, ho, ho, we're all gonna go get laid in Scandinavia," and uh, uh, Hugo says, "It's you know, it's not. This isn't a, a pleasure trip." He says, "It's it's it's musical electric chairs," which again is one of those things that sounds clever until you think about it for five seconds. Like the goal of musical chairs is to be in the chair. If you're in an electric chair, that's not a positive thing, Hugo. So that doesn't you wouldn't be surviving to the end. Uh, same thing when he says later that there's snakes on a plane, which Hugo that actually doesn't. That's not, no, Hugo's, Hugo's needs, needs training for metaphors. He needs like a six-week <laughs> symposium where he gets educated on all that. It has nothing to do with this entire episode. Like, he said it thinking he was so clever he and dark and grim. He's so smart and clever, but no. He hates Greg, but he's also not, and we'll talk about him a little bit tonight, kind of in with the old guard just because it's easier, but he's not old guard, right? Like, he's like a younger new guard, and he has a lot on the line, and he's quite obviously fucked. Like, he fucked up, as we know, and he's fucked. And it's interesting, his disdain probably comes from a place of, like, Greg keeps fucking up and gets to do whatever the fuck he wants. And even Tom calls him out at this point, right? He's like, he kind of talks okay in private, man, but, like, you don't just go saying that in front of all the execs. Like, this trip isn't about fucking Greg. It's about getting Waystar's dick wet, not your (laughs) dick wet. I love the other old guys when we see the scene on the plane, which I didn't realize the first time watching it what was happening. Then I saw someone talk about it and picked up on it that... Carl and Frank are putting on compression socks so they don't they don't die the way Logan did. But it's also like, you know, almost like kind of a tribute to him, like when an athlete retires and you, you wear their jersey. It's like their little tribute to what, what Logan was wearing at the end there. And uh, we see uh, Kendall and Roman freaking out about a movie project that's going south, just like the literal turkey movie that Roman was dealing with in season one. Although this one is called Callus uh, uh, Patron Hibernation, I believe the movie is, the, the, the dumbest movie name ever thought of. And we do get this, we get, we get to like overhear a little clip of it uh, uh, later. And um, first of all, is that just a very kind of meta thing about HBO that they're worried about this movie collapsing on them and they don't know how to, how to keep their business together. But it's also funny because the little clip we hear, it sounds pretty much exactly like a, a Michael Bay Transformers movie, which is hilarious that that's falling apart on them. Because there are, there are a couple Michael Bay movies that I like that I can fuck with, but those Transformers movies are, are garbage. So A plus, A plus satire there. Kind of topical because a new Transformers literally comes out this week. Just have to put that out there. I don't know if they planned it that way, but very topical. Good for them. Yeah, there's a new one coming out like tomorrow. I wish there wasn't. What's what? What is it? Rise of something. And there's like a mechanical tiger. Anyways, but it's bad looking. Oh, is it Michael Bay again? I don't know if it's Michael Bay. Well, we'll have to look it up. Someone should tell us. Clearly, it's had an impact. (laughs) Well, and the Calispatron series we've actually heard about in passing before in the past seasons, and it's been on like paperwork and stuff. So I thought that was really clever to bring it back. And like, it's obviously a series. So definitely some HBO meta, right? The Snyderverse comes to mind here versus the DCEU happening. Meanwhile, Shiv gradually realizes that they've been running press interference without her. And Kendall, like, pretends to be angry about it and says to Hugo, Whoa, man, what's going on? Are you, you doing stuff without us? He, you know, protests too much. It's like when, when Asha Greyjoy accuses Euron of, of killing Balon Greyjoy and Euron's like, do I control the wind? When, like, yeah, actually, you probably do, motherfucker. Yeah, I like that it calls out Shiv's not, she's not stupid. She does notice that. She knows PR. There's a fun bit when Kendall and Roman are, are hyping up the task ahead of them of, of confronting Matson and using all, again, the, the over-the-top grandiose metaphors. And Shiv just says, you're, you're reading documents is what you're doing, <laughs> which is hysterical. But that, you know, that also applies to her, her uh, political work because that's all she's ever doing either. Yeah, again, like she's used to this. She completely does this every day. She has to read through fucking annoying ass ledgers of shit. And then there's the great bit where they offer to 
who cut Tom's throat for her. Uh, and she's like, she's just kind of taken aback, even though this is their version of a nice gesture. They think they're helping out. And she's like, what, is he, he's messing that up? And they're like, no, no, Tom's good, which is hysterical that like, that's not even the point to them. Like his performance shortly after this the gojo team is referred to as incredibly meritocratic and here we're seeing how little that counts like tom's merit is not even factoring into what's happening here it's just like how you know he's he's a pawn to be used in their game with each other and yeah i love how the yeah the gojo team is described incredibly meritocratic that says that is one hell of a euphemism for fires everybody that's that's what they really do and jerry has to kind of take the role of uh, of you know coach at halftime when we're losing she has to be the, the one to whip up everyone's energy and all she can really come up with though is they they must be weak because you know europe with their functional safety nets and whatnot. They're not as they're not as hungry as us Americans. Yeah, I love that very mild that xenophobia against them, like because they're European, they're soft. When actually, like, you idiots are all very similar, we learn in this episode. Like, yes, there are differences in culture, but not that different in what you want, how you want it, and what you're willing to do to get it. Now that's like I was saying, that's the function of global capital is to flatten those kind of distinctions and and bring your class interest to the fore more than anything. So yeah, she tries to take advantage of that, but it doesn't doesn't really make a huge impact. Maybe not as inspiring as she would hope it to be. And so they get to Norway and they stay in this this hotel with like in the woods with the weird looking glass rooms. And this will be very familiar if you've seen the the twenty fifteen movie Ex Machina. Starring Oscar Isaac and Dom Hal Gleason. It was directed by Alex Garland, the guy who wrote the awesome Carl Urban Dread and directed uh, Annihilation from a few years ago. Uh, th- that's th- this hotel was used as the main setting for that movie, and that's that's very fitting for this, because that's a movie all about, about corporate sterility and about how rogue tech CEOs like Oscar Isaac and that one end up kind of driving themselves crazy from how isolated they've made themselves, and they, they wind up trying to recreate humanity. Oscar Isaac makes a, a female robot that he, he falls in love with and imprints on and is using Domino Gleason's kind of like a Turing test for her, and that, that definitely fits how these guys behave and also how they look at women, as we, we see more of with Matson. Yeah. Cutting. Shocking. Connor cameo this episode. I have to say on a like overall season look, they've been keeping my Connor away from me. You know, I'm a con head at heart. I really love Connor scenes and they've been keeping him real second fiddle while the kids play out the emotions of the company. So I hope this latter half of the season, oh my god, uh, the latter half of the season that we are now within will hopefully showcase him a little more as we get to the election. But I was real... I was kind of bummed. Like, obviously, Connor needs something to do, right? Like, this is the Reckney ball of all time for him, burying dad. He is very busy with it. He's like, we must not have cold butter at dad's funeral. It's also really sad, and I, I guess I say this coming from a place of, like, watching other people go through this, of because I don't have siblings, I don't have this issue, of watching, like, one sibling do all the work when the parent is dying or dead, and that horrible burden of grief that they take while the other siblings are allowed to go do whatever and don't aren't able to participate because of their own grief and the way they're handling it and how you know the sibling who shoulders all the bullshit you know they that that's kind of connor here he's doing the actual hard work of burying dad and it sounds silly right like he's calling them saying like this little frilly thing of what he's gonna wear or what they're gonna put him in in the casket or how they're gonna do the casket or where the casket's gonna be located at the the funeral all this stuff sounds silly to the siblings and it's framed that way but in real life when you think about this shit it's like a devastatingly exhausting part of grief and losing someone and it makes me feel for him like that is, he, he's the only one willing and able to take that responsibility right now, and they brush him off. There's that great mix of tones always with Connor, where on one hand, you do feel for him because they've left him to handle something that's so painful that they really ought to be working on together, not only logistically, but to kind of share the pain. But on the other hand, he's just he's just so hapless and petty always that you, you kind of understand why his sibling's first instinct is to make fun of him. I think about when he was running that that art event uh, in season one, uh, and he was just going like complacent, fired to the people working under him. And yeah, but it's interesting what he's dealing with specifically is that he's uncertain about whether they should dress up Logan in, in a kilt. And again, I go back to kind of the sense of cultural grounding versus the kind of cultureless world of global capital, where that kilt is a, you know, it's a nod to Scottish tradition, to Scottish culture, where Logan is from, but he didn't really live like that meant something to him that that mattered to him this is really like the only hint of that in his life only in his death and it it i think the reason connor is struggling is that it doesn't it doesn't feel like something he would actually choose it feels like something that's being imposed literally upon him by marcia to make it seem like that was important to him as, as connor says he's gonna look odd he's not gonna look like himself 
And it's like they said, right, that history is being rewritten right now about Logan Roy and that we've seen him in this show run from that. He wanted out of there. He wanted nothing to do with that culture or that lifestyle. He wanted to be able to say he was an American-made man. That's what he wanted for him and his siblings and for his family and what he wanted for his future. Despite being a Scottish Canadian. Despite being a Scottish Canadian shit. Well, what's more America than pretending that you were always an American? Yeah. That that defines America right there. Well, that's America. You can. You can just show up and say it. Who cares? I don't. You want to be American? You're American. You're American. Congrats, Emmett. No thanks. (laughs) Poor Connor. And I will say, Willa stood up for him. I caught this. I didn't catch it, I don't think, on our first watch, on our second watch, and especially because of the subtitles, I noticed she says when he answers the phone or calls them to his siblings and they answer the phone, she goes, don't let them make fun of you. Good for her. What a good wife. You know, that's, that's wholesome. That's wholesome shit right there because they do. They're very mean to him. It's true, but also what's he going to do about it? I know. He, he brings has, it on himself. He has no leverage over them is the thing. Yeah. For the next parts of the episode, let's kind of get through the big negotiation shares. We're there. We're overseas. We're at, we're at the thing. The the um what's it called? The their gathering, employee gathering, their annual retreat. Retreat. It's what they do. Retreat to move forward, as they call it in Thirty Rock. It's funny though because it is kind of like a really silly thing to name this battle thing. Like it's their retreat mm-hmm. when Kendall's trying to retreat. That's interesting. Roman's trying to interesting. Uh, let's talk about the old guard, right? Golden parachutes for Carl and for all, like you said last week. That's the focus. That's what they want. I love the sauna scene uh, where the kids are inside the sauna. Jerry's inside the sauna. Anyone that's fighting to be a part of this Hunger Games, as we called it, it's fighting to be in there, in the room where it happens, in the sauna. It's kind of like a literal boiler room, right? Like, they're all in there, and the heat is just boiling their blood up, and you can tell that, like, it could break at any moment. This is a very fragile negotiation back and forth and outside vibing like they've never vibed before are frank and carl who know that they don't count don't matter no one wants them there don't give a fuck and they're just on their little chairs because they've been there they've already been in the sauna every day with logan roy was a day in that motherfucking sauna okay like they're good they're good without it i love that and i like the occasional allusions to these guys actually having been firebrands back in the day like jerry in an earlier episode mentioned carl having done something revolutionary with cable and so while they they seem kind of smug and complacent as connor would say nowadays it's only because they've earned it like they had the juice back when they were the up-and-coming generation and it is very generational even the way kendall describes them as mom and dad just stopping by to see if we have food in the fridge so their crises are always purely logistical. Like, how can we get this done? How do, how do we avoid getting eaten alive by the corporate Vikings? They don't worry about what the kids worry about. They don't worry about there's no identity angst like we see with the younger generation. Which is why someone like Jerry, I think, can see right through the kids. Because they, they have no juice. They have no swag. It's an entire generation of Ron DeSantis's. Or DeSanti. I don't know what the plural of Ugh. DeSantis is. Thankfully, I don't think I'll have to learn. And hopefully, I swear, we never want to find out. And... It's emotional for the kids. Very emotional. They have so much emotional stock in this. And we see that in this episode. I think that's one of the biggest things that rings true throughout it. Like you see Roman react to it. You see Kendall react violently to it. You see Shiv react in her own way to it. Like how they are grieving Logan is the emotions attached to this company in this episode. And these guys are done. They're like, we already had our emotional attachment. We were young once, but it's over now. The old guys just want to preach and read sonnets about the art of making money. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? And nothing's more perfect, though, that Kendall holds up a clipboard with the number, circles it, 144. He's like, that's it, right? I just got to beat this number in the middle of their sonnets and soliloquies about how to do it, how the art of negotiation shall happen here. Kendall straight up is like, this is it. This is what you want me to do. See, I know exactly what you want me to do, and now I'm going to go do it. Goodbye. Leave me the fuck alone. That's a constant back and forth in the series about whether this is just a numbers game or whether the, the personalities actually do matter. That's what uh, Stewie confronted Ken and Logan about in, in previous seasons. And I think it's valid enough to reduce it to a raw number that is the goal. But Carl turns out to be right that starting with a joke is the way to go. Like Matson says he likes that Shiv can take a joke. And everyone keeps pointing out that, the, yeah, the numbers game 
is important, but it's also really basic because you can't just reduce it to a number. The question is what, what soft skills, what social techniques do you have to use to get there? Yeah, I'm excited to talk about Shiv's entire scene here with Matson because that's what humanizes him almost, right? Is becoming a listening ear, becoming a person that's like, oh, that's fucked up. You did that, but you're still a human being, so I'll listen to you. And that makes him kind of bend to her a little in a few ways. That's something that Kendall has written off. He's mechanical here. He's full killer mode. He says numbers, slash them, slash their throats, cut them, bleed them dry, take their money. I can do that. But that's actually not what negotiations are about, right? Because like in business, in my business job, like you can get a discount, but like you're not going to get the discount past a certain point. You have to bend humanity to get that discount. And that's the ticket. Hugo taking all that excess food. He's not old guard, but he's going to go here. Like we said, what an obvious metaphor. There's a lot. And I, I saw kind of some conversations about some people that are European that were like, oh, this whole episode was just Europeans making fun of Americans, and it was hysterical. And there's a lot of that, right? And it's such an obvious metaphor that Hugo, taking all that food, killed himself right there on the rock in front of them. To survive, you don't need that much food, first of all. If you're in survival mode, you shouldn't be taking all that food. You should be taking enough. Second of all, you put yourself on the kill list just by doing that, and then by joking about it, right? Like, then by straight up joking about it. Oh god, Hugo. My lord, you're not long for this world of succession. I love that his plate is literally full. Yeah, that says it all. And this is where we get the great little moment when Tom is talking to his equivalent or just the guy they've appointed to be his best friend for the weekend. And the guy's like, Tom, Tom of Siobhan, which is just such a great dig at him. Like, like it's Brienne of Tarth. Like Siobhan is, is where he's from and what he owes loyalty to, which is true in terms of how they see him. But Tom definitely doesn't want to think of himself that way. He just spent a whole season trying his hardest to break away from being only Tom of Siobhan. And his only other thing was Tom of Logan. And Logan's gone. And now nobody sees that at all. No one sees Tom of House Logan Roy. They see Tom of House Siobhan Roy. Welcome to the house, Tom. Welcome to the house. I think he should embrace it, you know, at this point. Just get a little gaudy with it. Maybe a house banner, flare it around. Ken, Roman, and Matson. What tension. My God. What joy I felt watching this. So out of their element. Matson's kind of weirdly alpha male, but also like just weird qualities were so loud, right? Like him with his shirt and being all like, let me take my sweater off and here's my abs for a moment, but not for too long. And Kendall and Roman just being like, Ugh. His masculinity had them feeling like they were four toddlers in a trench coat. <laughs> Straight up, they were like, fuck, we are four years old all over again. There's something that really stood out that Roman in this episode was the only one interested in keeping Shiv in the loop three different times. He straight up was like, should we get Shiv involved? Should we get Shiv involved? And he was also the only one trying to kind of keep Ken on track as far as going rogue, like reeling him back in. It takes a lot of work being more pale than a Scandinavian, but somehow Ken and Rome pull it off. I mean, Ken kind of always looks like a corpse on his third cup of coffee, but it's really notable here just how much more comfortable Matson looks than them. They're talking over each other, and he mocks them while telling them to relax. It's, it's classic bully shit. It's actually straight out of Logan's rulebook. Making fun of the way that they're speaking. They, you know, they're babbling back and forth with him when they're talking over one another. He babbles back at them and makes fun of them, not unlike Logan at Shiv in season three. He's like, bip, 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 bip. Uh, they want to be Logan. Both of them, in their own ways, in this episode, they think they are their father, writ small. In so many ways, but they're really not. Matson's actually the one playing Logan. In fact, Matson is like Logan in Turnhaven, where Logan was out of his mind, shoving money, trying to own Pierce, and Shiv was the wild card of the season, who was the person you needed to make the deal go through once more. And this is in spite of the fact that Matson, from what we've seen, is generally a pretty vacant, standoffish kind of guy. And it might be a deliberate change in the characterization here. He was much more sullen in season three, and now he's more talkative, he's more outgoing. There's the casualness with which he brings up finding his own dad dead, like in his car with the motor running, and then just says, what, no sorries for Lucas? Then again, we do get back to the weirdness pretty quickly, so maybe the idea here is that Matson only really comes alive when he smells blood in the water, so to speak. <laughs> or blood in the jug that he ships to Abba's house. Maybe with Logan, he met his match, right? Like, maybe the reason why Logan had him so 
blank and awkward was because Logan was his match. He had the leg up on the conversation. Logan's a legend and it's hard to understand how to play where Roman and Ken kind of wear that on their sleeve. They wear their personalities up front. They, they don't lie about who they are and they think they do. They really think that they're lying about who they are, but they're not. He can see through them. That gives him a little time to be maybe a little more characterized. It makes for a great contrast. Roman can just wilt in comparison to Madsen, and they aren't prepared at all to improvise their way through this meeting. They had a script, they were ready to stick to it, and when he deviates from it, all Roman can say is, we weren't expecting that. Roman is the one behaving more like Madsen when we first met him at Ken's birthday party. He's sullen, he's brittle, and he, fall he keeps falling back on what Dad said about ATN, which really isn't relevant anymore because, you know, Dad's dead. And then, uh, you know, Ken reacts poorly to the deal, too, even though, in the process, Matson is offering them more money. What happened to your little clipboard there, Ken? I thought it was all about the bottom line. And Matson, he really here takes advantage of apparently running his company like a tyrant, that he doesn't have to check in with anyone, he doesn't have to check in with the board, any of his underlings, and that has its, has its obvious advantages and drawbacks in a corporate context. You know, Ken and Rome have to rely on other people, but that also means they can... It doesn't have to just be one guy with his one skill set. And so I like the bit when they're, after that meeting, they're walking back towards the old guard and Ken and Rome quietly say to each other, we say? Yeah, yeah, we say. Like, they just want to be sure we're telling them everything? Yeah, we're telling them everything. It's good that Kendall is checking with Roman on that, at least. Like, he's not completely gone because this entire episode, and to be fair, he's manipulating Roman so fucking heavily. And we're going to talk about that in this episode to his side to, like, make him, you know, yeah, we're gonna fuck him over. Fuck this guy. Uh, he's playing on Roman's grief really heavily, and but like it's good at least he's still checking with Rome because Ken's pretty out there this episode. He's pretty, he's ready to fuck it all. He's ready to burn it all down, and it makes me think he's ready to just burn his dad's legacy down. I think he wants it dead. Shiv and Matson, what a charged scene. Uh, weird tension between them. Matson needs a mommy, and she's mother, so I think it all worked out really well. Matson sending blood to Ebba, his comms director, the person who directs communications about his companies, the person who directs communications about him, the public figure that he is, he's sending, oh, casually half a liter of blood to her all the time, because they're, like, broken up. That's... How romantic. Normal. Weird. Interesting. Uh, some Elon and Grimes shit going on in this house. Shiv and Matson are both manipulating each other. And I think that's very sexy, very cool. I'm excited to see more of that moving forward. He's manipulating her to get to her brothers. And she's manipulating her, him. She's manipulating him for a lot of reasons. Like her own whims of money. Tom. Uh, fucking ATN, and maybe her brothers, right? Like her ATN agenda of selling ATN, cutting out the bad political ties with Mencken. Shiv Jenda's winning in this episode. Tom's off the kill list. Sid maybe can be fired. Baby in the basket. Think Shiv thinks she could have it all. Her white picket fence and her corporate career. She could be both, all of it, any of it. And what's, I think, really great about this scene is that Skarsgård's brash charisma completely falls apart. And all of a sudden, he's just Roman trying to explain dick pics to Logan. Not only do these guys sexually harass women, they can't even explain what it is exactly they're getting out of it. And that is, I think, also, again, a generational thing. Like, Logan is totally fine with sexual harassment, as long as it's something he understands. We saw that in the backstory with Mo Lester. We saw it when Roman first sent the dick pic and Logan tried to pass it off as Roman being Roman. But this, this is just a mystery even to the men doing it. So why are they doing it? And I think the honest answer is boredom. They, they can't access the thrill of genuine seduction or romance. Like Madsen, from what the rumor, rumor we hear in this episode is that Madsen listens to podcasts while he's fucking. What he says to, what Roman says to him, you're going to get bored and move on. I think that's very, very true. So they have to keep upping the ante. They have to go for the shock factor, this feeling of getting away with something that no one else would get away with. That's why at the end of the episode, Madsen asks Shiv for a picture of her brother's faces. He, he, he gets off on their misery. But when he's called on it, or when Roman is called on the dick pic, they, they fall apart and they get, they look like kids. They look sheepish. Not because they're ashamed of their actions, I don't think they are, but because it's so obvious that it's all posturing and they're just blue-balling themselves so they can feel something, anything. And it lines up with what Madsen said when 
Roman visited him and his little his little place in wherever they were. Again, they just stood all over the world. Switzerland Narnia. or Austria, wherever it was. And he was just like, I found the most beautiful place in the world and I'm just completely bored with it. And I love when Shiv points out that Madsen said that, you know, I sent my blood as a joke. And, he was, and she's like, first of all, good one. Like, there's, that's, there's no joke there. And he keeps going back and forth on whether it was a joke. And both Roman and Madsen with their, their little picadillos here, they, they talk about it like, like it's not even them doing it. Like, they can't explain their own decisions. It's more about the other person. It's about provoking a reaction. They turn into, like, school children, right, about it. Like, ashamed. Like, even Matson, you could see on his face, he kind of, like, like you said, he got bashful with Shiv. He's like, well, you know, it was a, it was a joke. And because he's being called on the carpet and realizing he can't even fucking explain it because he's fucked up. He's fucked up. If this came out about him, it could be a bad thing, right? Like, would you say... If you were sending half liters of blood at monthly, every other month, to a girl you dated that worked for you, w- would you say that if that was found out, things would go well for you, Emmett? I think I would be so lightheaded from all that blood, I wouldn't know what was going on, to be honest with you. That's a fair amount. Maybe that's the real problem, is that he's really lightheaded all the time or something. But and like, taking psilocybin at breakfast, too, with that much blood loss, he's, he's in trouble. I'm just saying the amount of acid this guy has to do every week on top of losing that much blood, I'm worried for Matson, man. He's not going to last the year. It also shows like he's taking his daddy's death a lot harder than they are right now, I will say. They haven't fully gotten into it, but damn, he's got some issues that man does. This sounds like a great time for them to give him ATN. Maybe, maybe not, right? Because that weirdness could be wrangled to him instead of Waystar because like, that blood thing comes out, it's over. I mean, like, some immigrants on a carnival cruise line falling in the water. Oops. Oops. They, they've been able to pass that one off at the DOJ. That's what they've been saying to the DOJ. Oops, they fell. But, like, you're shipping blood to your, your ex that works for you? I don't know. That one the American people may not stand for. Which Go is Joe. what Shiv says. And I definitely think Shiv is ready for someone else to take the fall for ATN, especially with regards to the, the potential scandal she brings up here about ATN being directly in touch with Mencken's campaign. And that's different for the boys, but especially Roman. ATN is something Dad loved. It's the part of Royko most associated with him. It was him. And for Shiv, it just embodies the nasty kind of politics that drove her away from the company. And it comes back to what Connor and Ken said last season, right? Like, you knew. We all knew, you guys, that this is what it is. And now Shiv realizes that is what it always was. Like, she can kind of admit, I think, to herself now. That's what it was. Gojo's just as fucked up as Waystar. That's the core of capitalistic rot in both of these companies, cover-ups and fuck-ups. I do think there's something at play with Shiv hiding her pregnancy still, obviously, and we see her later talk to Tom, and I think she's ready to reveal some of it. She's obviously not doing drugs. Obviously, the sip of champagne that she has at the end of the episode. All right, I'm gonna get real. I've seen a lot of comments on the old internet being like, Shiv's out here being an irresponsible mother already, falling down and doing drugs. Our parents, the people that birthed us, if you're listening to this podcast, I can guarantee people that birthed you probably did fucked up shit leading up to 20 weeks of birth too, right? Like, a lot of people don't 100% know. They don't 100% know how prego they are yet. So I'm just saying, they probably did a lot of smoking, drinking, maybe some drugs. If you turned out okay, you turned out okay. I know that I probably had those first 20 weeks lend a lot to my characterization personally. I think it's very clear she is hiding it. She doesn't do the cocaine. If you watch, clearly she holds the bottle to make him feel at ease so he can talk to her. And then he interrupts her so she doesn't have to. And she's kind of pretend sipping at the scotch and later the champagne, a sip of champagne is not going to murder her child. Interesting though, definitely hiding it still because that takes away literally a lot of her power when people find out that she is carrying another human being. That's just how it works. I can't explain it to you. I don't know. Soon enough, though, it's like it has to come out. Like, very soon. It's almost 20 weeks. We're 17-ish, 18-ish weeks, I think. It's subtly done how she doesn't actually use the cocaine or take a drink. It's like Roman. Roman, when he didn't, when he wasn't taking the coke in the bathroom with that one guy in the previous season. But yeah, she's, she's clearly trying to avoid having to talk about it, and she's not going to be able to for much longer. Our brothers, our disgusting brothers, Tom and Greg and Matson and co. I love the conversation with Greg and Tom standing in front of dead, turning meat. Two on the nose, right? But like definitely dead meat roasting behind them says something. 
like when the sauna scene earlier when Carl and Frank were making fun of everyone inside, saying they were hanging out the window like Peking Duck. Same idea here. And uh, Greg thinks he's safe because he's part of what he calls the Quad Squad, a name he is very proud of, came up with all by himself. He's, he's part of the team. It's like, yeah, sorry, there's, there's, there's three musketeers. There's D'Artagnan, but Greg, you're not, you're not even D'Artagnan level. Four's a crowd, Greg. Four's a crowd. That question that they get right about what's going on with France felt like a test, very much a test to see how they answered. Tom actually gave kind of a good answer, one that I think will benefit him. Greg, God bless you, but my God. But Tom spoke about rebuilding, right? That America doesn't care what happens, but they'll be there after the fall to build up once more, which is kind of a perfect response to Waystar and Gojo and what's happening with them. The buildup is where you make the money. And yeah, they, specifically Matson asks about France, will they make it? Which is such a specifically dumb question of the kind you see come up in political discussions. Like, what does that mean? Is France going to literally collapse as a nation state? No, you just think it's not going to be the kind of country you'd want to hang out in. And yeah, Tom's answer is pretty flippant, but he does hit on something. We rebuilt France before. We did it with the Marshall Plan after World War II. But if we're a, a late empire, as Tom calls the United States, can we can we do that again? You know, we've, we've lost our, our baby boomer era icon of Logan. Are we really up for the job of rebuilding the world again? And should we? Yeah, and I think he actually performed really well in that moment because he showed from an American news stance, right? Like he answered as the head of the American news office for ATN. He said, this is what the American people think. And this is what they give a fuck about. We don't give a shit about what you Europeans think. And he kind of showed them he's an asset in that moment. He is an asset for ATN, at least. Where, again, Greg, cringe. So cringe. Oh, God. With his, uh, what did he say? The, uh, the economist is what he quoted. The economist is what he quoted. Don't, don't count old, 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 old France. And immediately Tom, with his bully instinct, senses he can pass on the hot potato. That he can at least be the, the second lowest person on the totem pole in that scene. He turns on Greg as he has before. Because he knows that all the, the, the bullying laser sights are focused on him. He just has to move it on. Which is a very, you know, classic thing in, in masculine social circles that you try to sense weakness. I say masculine social circles, but, you know, girls do that too, just differently. Yes, we do. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> we absolutely do. So shut up, Emmett. Gotta I'm just kidding. Gotta support women's wrongs on the podcast, <laughs> I understand. That's why we talk about Shiv a lot. I love Lem Lemon Cloak. Uh, from Game of Thrones, who's in this. Richard Lawnmouth is in this show, and he says to Greg, or about Greg, sorry, re-Greg, he calls him two meters of inbred nepotism and a Habsburg giant, which you can make out some of it in his conversation, but my God, never chortled so hard. Those are great. Two meters is about right. Is about right. Again, you're saying, you know, orphans... Or little, little kids in a cloak, kids in a trench coat. That is just Greg. <laughs> He's four toddlers in a trench coat. Exactly. I like that you put it as orphans, though. That, that makes it better. Yeah, Greg feels spiritually like an orphan, even though we know he still has a mom. V. Oliver Twist, you know? So then we move into the heart of whether the deal is going to happen. We get to the negotiation between Rome and Ken and Matson, uh, And Matson says, y- y- I want ATN. I, I want that to be part of the deal. He wants to change it up. Originally, ATN was carved out. Wouldn't be for him. Would stick with the family. He wants ATN too. And he tells the brothers that you don't want ATN, which is true. I don't think they actually do. I think it's more about their dad at this point. But it's it's such a dickish way of putting it to tell another person what they want. Uh, Matson is right, though, that the, that the graph, as he says, is horrible. That their future's prospects, even if they're great right now, they don't look good in the next five, ten years. Logan said that, too, and Mencken agreed with it in that one political episode, that their their audience is aging. The clock is ticking, and they need to pull off a pivot. And I love the line that Madsen says about Roman Ken, which is that you're a tribute band, which cuts to the core of it. They're, they're, they're just covering the greatest hits of Logan at this point, and they, they, they can't do that forever. He says, all I really want to do is make you rich. And Kendall has the great killer comeback, we're already rich, which is true, but it's not enough. If it was enough, they wouldn't be doing all of this. I mean, that's what the family told Ken when he was originally thinking of selling the companies. They don't just want the raw amount of money. They want the prestige and the access that comes with running a company, a big company. The problem being that this company's been ridden into the fucking ground and is in wild amounts of debt. That's the biggest part of this is like, you two can't fucking dig yourselves out of the debt hole you're in. You need to sell it. Grow up. Well, as Roman said, Ken will self-destruct because it's his favorite. 
That's what he loves. He loves the sensation of going over the edge, pretty much regardless of the details of what he's doing when that happens. Like Ken used to use Greg to get drugs. Now he uses him as a mole to seed info as part of his disinformation campaign against Madsen, but it's, it's the same emotion for him. It's, as he describes it, it's a, a tightrope walk on a straight razor. And Roman just looks at him and says, why does that make you smile? It always does. And now he's riding the high of Logan's death while Roman's, at least for the moment, caught in depression, trying to tie up these loose ends in the name of closure. But I think it's a nice twist that Roman is actually the one who self-destructs when he sees Logan's corpse, when, when Connor sends them the picture. I don't know if it has the kilt on him or not, but uh, Roman says it, it's dad but not dad, which is the core, I think, of what anyone feels when they look at the body of a loved one. And that's right after that is when Roman just can't take Madsen's mockery anymore. And we're seeing Roman reach the point where he, of all people, can't be ironic, his usual defense mechanism, because this time he actually cares about something. And Hugo for once says something insightful about this towards the end of the episode. He says that Ken is unreadable. It's Roman you want to watch. Because yeah, Roman is now wearing his heart on his sleeves. And he, he reacts so poorly to Matson calling Logan a prick, but you know, from Matson's POV, I think he's actually praising Logan when he calls him a prick. From a guy like Matson, that's a compliment. And Matson's able to cut through their manipulation pretty quick when they try sandbagging him, Scooby-Dooing him, and saying that their movie's going poorly, and he immediately sees, oh, you're trying to get me to not buy the company and act like it was my idea. He knows how to use their grief against them. And Roman just, just can't handle that. He just loses it on Matson and calls him, you inhuman fucking dog man. And he goes as far as to say that Matson's responsible for Logan's death, that he drove him to it out of stress. And I think he's only saying that because, like Shiv, he fears that Really, they're the ones who stressed Logan out to the point of dying, just like they almost did at the beginning of the show. Yeah, he thinks it's his voicemail. I mean, that's the big thing. He, at night, sits there alone because, you know, his girlfriends all left him because he wanted to have them play like they were dead during sex. Um, but glossing over that, he, and he's emotionally unavailable, glossing over that too. But he, that's what he thinks about at night, that his voicemail is what did him in and he'll never have the confirmation of that yes or no. And in a way, though, like, he's not wrong on some of the things he says to Matson. Maybe, perhaps, he should have reeled it in, but he breaks. He fucking breaks, and all of his breaking plays straight into Kendall's hand for tanking the deal without even knowing. And it's interesting because while Roman can sit there and say Ken's going to self-destruct, Roman doesn't understand what that means, what it affects, or see it happening at the exact time it's happening. He only sees it when Ken goes crazy. He sees it, which it looks like it'll be next episode, by the way, from what the previews entail. He sees it when Ken's off the rails on drugs. He doesn't see it now where Ken is using him and using his breaking to shoehorn the tanking of the deal in. Matson's right with what he says to them, that tanking the deal is a violation, right? Like, the shareholders can, should, and may go after them if they try to tank the deal, which of course explains why he calls Frank with the details, because. That's probably what a lot of people did with Logan, actually. Now that I say it out loud, they probably called Frank because they knew that's how you get around the Roys. You call the CEO friendly adjacents. Matson giving them more money is also really interesting. He's kind of... After this episode, I would say Matson's kind of an emotional baby. I feel like we watched him unravel a lot in this episode, showing us that he's not really a king. He's a stupid rich kid as well who wants attention and he wants someone to play with him, which Shiv did. In fact, it kind of shows how wrong Logan was about Matson. He said that Matson would walk if the kids push him, but the kids pushed, Shiv helped the push, and now Matson's giving them more money. A 50-50 cash stock deal that he offers them, though, however, is isn't maybe an issue? Like, that could come up to be a big problem. And, and just to throw some numbers around, right, so that's a payout offer, half in cash, half in stock options, which, as we talked about above, just shy of 200. So, like, if you had 187 stocks, you would get 50% from the company, and the other 50% would be, like, $935. So, before Logan's death, Ken had 12,904,663 shares, according to his birthday card. So, $1 billion 238847648 dollars and then you would still have some 6,452,331 shares remaining that he could hold on to and keep some control but then if Matson makes you know if he tanks the company and he fucks Waystar over and his bloody shit comes out then you lose all those shares and all that money right that tanks you don't make that money 
So obviously, maybe he has more shares now from his dad dying, but and maybe the writers needed stakes to be a lot higher for Ken last season, right, with the birthday card. Early season four kind of implies that their fortunes stand in about, you know, like the billions, 2.5 to 5-ish billion dollars with stakes of like 2.5% of the company each. So if it's somewhere around the shares mentioned, if Matson tanks this with his blood bank dick pics, it stands to reason half their fortune is no longer shit. Some great work with the numbers there, Chloe. Where'd you go to business school? I didn't, bitch. <laughs> really? You didn't go to Hanna-Barbera fucking business school? Actually, I graduated cum loud. Uh, that, that is one of my favorite parts, the Hanna-Barbera. That was, I cried laughing when he said that to them. That was the funniest fucking line. Yeah, they, they are at risk. There is a risk right now, and I think they need to mitigate that risk. They need to do some ameliorating. Too sweet. <laughs> So then we get into the, the kill list itself at the end of the episode. Whenever they bring up a kill list on this show, I always think about one of my favorite recent horror movies from like 10 years ago, British horror movie called Kill List, which is about a couple of uh, Iraq War veterans who get into the private hitman game and end up caught into a, a cult and a conspiracy beyond their reckoning. And there's a great bit when the main character meets his best friend's new girlfriend, who is a an HR person in a big company. And the hitman, even though he's a, he's a veteran from the Iraq War, he's a hitman. He kills people all the time. But he has such contempt for what she does and says that you're, you know, you're a hatchet person. You, you take people's lives apart. So it's a great comparison of literal assassinations to the more kind of bloodless corporate downsizing and associating the two, which is also what we see here. Yeah, and coming back to some of those season one parallels, it's like we're back at Valter and here's our new kill list, right? Like, very, very season one, only uh, with the kids in charge. The, it's like an AU, an alternate universe of season one. Interesting. We should watch that. I don't know if I could handle it, though. The kill list? Yeah. Probably not. Okay, so we shouldn't watch that. We're not gonna. <laughs> Rip Hugo, you did this one to yourself. No comments, no notes. I mean, that's a... Wow, Hugo, you and your weirdly Squidward-shaped head. I don't know what to do with you. You have to appreciate how relaxed all the olds on the plane are when they're hearing about everyone else getting killed off. And they're like, huh, too bad. Huh, anyways, blah, blah, blah. Uh, while they're being bought, you know, people that are like, I'm fine. I don't know about your problems when all these people are losing their jobs. <laughs> uh, real awkward plane ride. I was like, damn, you guys don't have any sort of remorse at all? I wouldn't either. I'd be happy I'd be rich, but I guess that pays for a lot of it. Uh, Tom, you're so lucky that you said that really good thing earlier about America, and then also that your wife is really confused about her feelings for you. That probably saved you a little bit. Uh, and Shiv, I think I, I think she's definitely kind of protecting him on accident in a way, because Matson definitely saw her reaction to when he asked, what's up with that? And she kind of told him the truth-ish about it. Like, it's fucked up. We're fucked up. We got lost. I, uh, I appreciated that she was a little vulnerable with him to gain that trust because it worked for Tom, apparently. I did love the scene where she gets his shoes dirty and then he grabs her earlobe and says it's chubby. Oh, I love love. It was, uh, it was like an early Tom and Greg scene. And that's, yeah, that's the classic dynamic, I think, of an on and off relationship like theirs is that when you're on, you want to be off. But when you're off, you kind of want to be on. You're reminded of all the things you like about each other. But yeah, I think that's the best case scenario for Shiv is that she kills off ATN but manages to keep Tom. Yeah, she, she wants him back. That's what that was. That little dinner date ask out. She wants to tell him about the bun in the oven. And I think you make a great point about the early Tom Greg energy. And this is probably what their original energy was like. They probably bullied each other a little, flirted, you know. They have that bully love kind of energy going on. And, and coming back to what I said earlier, I really do think she thinks she could have it all, right? Like, she could stick it to her parents and her brothers and her mother, that she could girl boss, she could housewife, she could win this Game of Thrones going on. Except somehow I do feel like that isn't how this ends. However, I don't think we have to deal with that next week, because from the previews, I think the first implosion we're going to have to deal with is Kendall. I think it's Kendall Yay. flipping his nut next week. He's going full nut-nut, family therapy on it. I'm thinking that Shiv is going to be more of an end-of-the-season break. So, we'll see. Well, I'm at happy halfway to the end of the season. We made it, kind of. Kind of. Uh, and by the end of the season, I mean halfway to the end of the season and then to the end of the end of the end of the, of the show. Oh, God, we have to find other shows. My Lord, that's a topic for another day. 
Let us know what you're listening and watching to right now, right? We might need to cop whatever you guys are watching out there, figure out our next steps, but we got five weeks for that. So until then, Emmett, please let everyone know where they can find you online. You can find me on Twitter at Quentin, and you can find the Nauticast podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts, and you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F. We will link those below for you to follow, and of course, you can find us over at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon, C-A-N-O-N, where there are tons of perks for you to discover over at that website. A reminder that we are paused on Patreon for pay cycle until June. So if you want to pledge next month in May, that would be your best bet. Thanks so much for being patient in the interim between episodes right now as we wait to get back to A Song of Ice and Fire in May 2023. Until then, you will probably be hearing some succession. We'll be working towards getting our bonus Patreon episode out as soon as we can for Victorian 1, The Wind's a Winner for patrons in the $5 and up tier. And you can also find us over at Twitter. Girls Gone Canon, C-A-N-O-N, as well as at Gmail, girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. If you want to shoot us a message about the episodes for Succession or A Song of Ice and Fire or whatever else we're talking about that you're listening to. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure you're subscribed to us on a podcast platform near you. Whatever one is your favorite, I promise you'll find us there. I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I'm Emmett, also known as Pork Quentin. Thanks. Bye.